All right. Welcome back to the YNBO podcast. This is Alexis and Melody. And today we will be talking about the affirmative action Supreme Court case. So did you want to kick things off, Mel? Yeah. So as we know, we we read headlines and we have these reactions and opinions to headlines, but I really wanted to kind of take a deep dive into, okay, like what, what was the thought process with how they made it to this determination before we even start thinking about what does it look like now that this decision has, you know, changed the game in the terms of the admissions process in higher education. So, um, we're just going to be doing a review. This actually might be part one of the review because if anyone has actually, you know, decided to take a look at the decision, it is quite, quite long, 237 pages. Um, a lot to read, a lot to consume, a lot to understand and interpret. So this is us, you know, kicking it off. But what, um, what I'm actually grateful for is learning more about what Harvard's and UNC's admissions process looked like. I feel like from the outside looking in, um, and as someone who has participated in the admissions process in higher education, you don't, there's the standard framework and blueprint that you're given. And then there's really how it happens behind the scenes. And so it was nice to hear about how things are happening behind the scenes. All right. So, um, for Harvard, they, um, now I might have a scrolling problem. So for Harvard, they say that there are six categories. Those six categories are broken down within the decision. There's an initial screening by what they call the first reader. And they assign a numerical score in each of the six categories. So that's academic, extracurricular, athletic, school support, personal and overall. And it says the overall is a composite of five other ratings, but they said the first reader does and can consider the applicant's race in that first round. So then they have subcommittees and it sounds like that those subcommittees review all applications that in a certain geographic location. So these are regional subcommittees and they rate, make recommendations to the full admissions committee. Um, and uh, as a part of that process, race is taken into account. And they said the full admissions committee is around 40 people. And they claim the discussions of race is just to make sure that it doesn't drop off from what, what it was the year before. So they don't want to see a dip and who they're the demographics and stuff that they're accepting. So that's where they claim they're, you know, considering race. So people vote, right? And then they say the racial um, composition is disclosed to the committee. So that is the initial stage. That's the initial stage. Then they have the last stage of the admissions process called the LOP. And the LOP is still a tentative people that are admitted and they're placed on this list. And in that stage is where they consider legacy status, recruited athlete status, financial aid eligibility, and race. And so... They claim race is a determinative tip for a significant percentage of all admitted African-American and Hispanic applicants. And I guess that's where the whole you're here to meet the quota stuff comes from. Right. They're pretty much saying that anyone that is of a certain race is like it was a part of the determination process. Like their race did actually play a factor and getting them there. Right. And I think once you, once people hear that part or they read that part, they're, they're made privy to 
that part of the process, then it becomes tunnel vision. Like, this is the only reason you got in. And all those things that you just said prior to go completely out the window because they said, oh, we just picked up some random black person, some random Hispanic person, some random Pacific Islander off the street, completely disregarded merit and extracurriculars and them as a whole applicant and said, all right, well, you meet our quota. Let's get you in here when clearly that's not the case. But so that was Harvard's admissions process. So UNC, they say it's similar. Every application is reviewed by a admissions office reader. They assign a numerical rating to each of the several categories. Readers are required to consider the applicant's race as a factor in their review. And then they make a written recommendation on each assigned application. Um, and they may provide an applicant a substantial plus depending on the applicant's race. Mm-hmm. At this stage, most recommendations are provisionally final. A committee of experienced staff, member, staff members then conduct a school group review of every initial decision made by the reader. That's that first stage and either approves or rejects the recommendation. And then making those decisions, the committee um, may consider the applicant's race. So same thing, but it sounds like not as many people involved with actually reviewing the process, but similar structure to it makes it through this first group or individual. It sounds like you see it might be one person the way it's worded, but Mm, it's definitely not one person, but they don't as clearly as Harvard does. The readers, yeah, because they have these committees and subcommittees at Harvard, but UNC has, I think, a group that is in that designated title because they said Harvard, I think, generally sees like Mm -hmm. 60,000 applications and UNC receives around 40-ish, like 40,000, which I'm like, that's really good, you know, in comparison. But the number of people accepted in comparison to, you know, applications is like... That's a drastic difference, man. So I guess it's hard out here, even though it looks so easy. But so Uh many thoughts. Right. And so I just want to go to where um, the Brown versus Board is mentioned, because that's usually a part of the headlines when we heard about this. And it said there, the court overturned a separate but equal regime established in Plessy. And that's Plessy versus Ferguson, for those who don't know. And began on the path of invalidating all de jure racial discrimination by the states and federal government. And the conclusion reached by the Brown Court was unmistakably clear. The right to a public education must be made available to all on equal terms. So they're really like honing in there on that decision that changed the game for African-Americans, you know, and education, public education in general. Um, and so, and I, and I guess they're saying this same, it still applies in higher education. So it said the court reiterated that the rule just one year later, holding that full compliance with Brown required schools to admit students on a racially non-discriminatory basis. And in the years that followed, Brown's fundamental principle that racial discrimination in public education is unconstitutional. So now we're getting into the backbone of... I guess why these what exactly are- happened, <laughs> what's going on, what the things look like. So it sounds like you're saying that they honed in on this equal opportunity. Every applicant should be able to have the, an, an equal opportunity. And the affirmative action laws, it was a way to kind of level the playing field. And now they've said, well, we're going to take out race as a consideration. But um, from the articles I read, I did not read the decision. Um, so thank you for recapping that 
in the, the amount of time that we have, but if there's going to be an extreme amount of responsibility on these admissions committees to make sure that you're still trying to make the process as equal as possible um, because race isn't the only determinant, but you still have applicants who have different advantages to make themselves look more attractive. So how do you help level that playing field? And if that's okay, well, we're not going to take into account that, you know, like say you have people who go to schools or participate in programs in high school that give you extra GPA percentages or GPA points. So mm-hmm. instead of being on the four point scale, you're on a five point scale or you mm-hmm. know, so on and so forth. They say, all right, well, we're not going to consider those extra ones. We're going to have some type of formula or calculation to put everyone on the same playing field in terms of their GPA. Yes, people will start crying and saying, oh, you know, it's not fair because I worked harder and did a, a harder program. But that program wasn't available to 15,000 of our 46,000 applicants. So let's level the playing field. Let's make it more equal. And I think those are things, and that's just an example of all the things that you talked about mm-hmm. are considered in admissions processes. The admissions committees are going to have to take those things into account because again, race wasn't the only determinant, but you have to try to make it an equal playing field. So this just takes out some of it. Well, they were, I feel like the affirmative action was writing or wrong because they know that there was numerous, you know, so many people that didn't, weren't able to set themselves up for success because of the laws that were in place, segregation laws. Mm -hmm. And now that, you know, they are, they desegregated, right? And now Blacks can attend school and can go get an education and get admitted into institutions. Mm -hmm. Um, because we know historically they didn't have these opportunities, we have to be more intentional about making sure we can get as many, you know, qualified candidates and applicants as possible and opportunity going forward. Because right. you're acknowledging the fact that historically there's people that couldn't set themselves up for success because they didn't have the same opportunities as others. Now right. we're doing away with that, but we're doing away with that is saying, well, Technically, these all of these decisions that stem from Brown versus Board did away altogether. Like in public education, apparently it's not because like anybody can get in. Right with uh, busing, anybody can get on a bus. It doesn't matter with the public. And they're they're naming this in the decision with the public beaches and bathhouses. Like you can just go to the beach. Nobody's like right. So. They're saying in higher education, apparently people should just be able to get in off their merits, off of hopefully those other categories without mm-hmm. considering race altogether. However, there's still aspects, as you heard, the geogra- the regional committees and the geographic areas, there, there's still aspects of, I feel like, race in that part of the process. Like there are certain areas that we know or I, black and brown or a melting pot or, mm-hmm. you know, the suburbs. Absolutely. And does that mean that they'll do away with those other aspects of the application process that can kind and of. I don't get- think that they will because it'll start to affect other things that they don't want to touch, but that's a different conversation. Um, I do think that by eliminating it's, it's similar to the whole uh, ban the box thing on an application. So you can't, like they've talked about, you know, maybe not putting your name in your application or um, don't, you know, check that you were a felon or, you know, had a pending case or something like that. And what happens when you say, all right, you know, I'm going to take off my race off of my application, like my job application. I'm not going to say what my race is. Then the committees who are reviewing your application for a job start to use other indicators on your application to try to figure out 
what race you are. So the first thing they look at is your name. Do you have a quote unquote ethnic sounding name? And then they say, okay, well, we'll remove the name from the application. And they start to look at your address. Where are you from? Is this a heavily populated area with minorities or low income families? All right. Well, I know where, where you're coming from. So you're probably one of these races. So people start to use all these other things to be a proxy for race. So removing race from the applications process or the admissions process for higher education is just one step of it. But if these committees are saying, well, we still want to make sure that we, we have a certain number of people and we have a diverse population because we want to be able to speak to that, then they'll just use other parts of the application. And you can't change that to your point. There are going to be indicators on your application no matter what. Now, or most most oftentimes, I don't want to speak in, in generalizations, but mm-hmm. most of the time there are indicators in your application that give a peek into someone's background. Mm-hmm. The same as if you have indicators of, I went to the finest private high school in the country. Nine times out of 10, you're probably not black and brown. But that's the same with when in the hiring process, because the hiring process does to still want to collect the demographics. Mm-hmm. Um, so they try to collect it up front in the application process. And then there's people that, you know, will put it and then there's people that won't put it. But you're right. If you kind of if you don't. And then the question is, OK. But I think in the hiring process, we we're impressed if someone came from Ivy League or, you know, but you're not really you're trained to not have any bias towards a particular institution or right. so forth and so on. But do people do it? That's the question. Does it happen? I'm I don't sure. think it's a, a it's, it's, I feel like it happens, but it doesn't happen. It's not the norm. So you have people who are few and far between that say, well, I'm going to consider this applicant as a total applicant. Because when I look at people's applications or their resumes, like me as an individual, and I see, okay, well, I see what institution they went to for higher education. I see what their track record has been like. And I can be super impressed with the person who, either didn't go to school at all or went to a not well-known university that I'd never heard of. And I can see what their, their um track record has been like. And I'm like, man, they are super impressive. Like what the things that they've done on their resume. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they had to go to one of the finest institutions in the country or have a formal education at all to be an impressive applicant. But that's me. And I think I'm one of the outliers. Like I'm one of the, the minorities of that because majority of the time is, do you check these box? Check, check, check. I have so much to do today. I'm not about to carefully consider each applicant because I have to move it along. So do we have someone who has these credentials? Boom. All right. Hire them. Let's go on to the next thing. So here, something I've done just in having the authority to do so in the hiring process is to try to reinforce the object objectivity of the mm-hmm. process. So I've like created an Excel sheet where we'll put education and literally BA, you know, masters, you know, PhD, whatever. We don't put any institution. We just kind of put the level and right. then I break it down for the relevant experience we're looking for. So like if technical is needed, you know, technical Mm -hmm. um, program management, you know, uh, training, supervisory Mm -hmm. experience. And then I'll examine their resume and just put numbers for each of those areas. This person has this many years. This person has this many years, this many years. So when you're looking at all the candidates, Mm -hmm. um, and you're just looking at the spreadsheet because I'm looking at the spreadsheet more than like the goal is to really just have less people with too much information that could bias the process. Right. I think someone that can pass along like, yes, it's great to see their cover letter and letters of recommendation and to know what their outside activities, even though outside activities typically <laughs> give a give a give a person away. So if you're asking about memberships and volunteerism. I think nine times out of 10, you're going to be able to tell, but um, it reinforces, oh, let's look at these people objectively, even if they do have access to the resume and stuff like that. Like 
looking at the spreadsheet, this person has the more range of experience that we need, or this more, this person is higher in this area and then in this area, um, compared to this particular candidate, you know, and it forces you to not just make a decision based off of your bias, like looking at them in a more objective manner. And right. I found it very effective. It sounds really effective. And it sounds like you're doing the process that you use for hiring is what we would want from these higher education institutions. You know, let's whittle them down. Let's, let's... But they say they give them numbers too. They it's numerical rankings based on <laughs> certain areas, right? Well, I think in the spirit of like saying we want a diverse population and I'd harp on this all the time, every single time we have discussions about diversity at work or, you know, outside of work, that race is only one factor of building a a diverse population. You, of all people, understand this. And I know you have probably um, come up against similar arguments that, again, it's just one factor. Do you, you want people from differing backgrounds? Yes, race is uh, one of the easiest indicators, but it's not the only indicator. Um, because you want to build more of that melting pot, more of those genuine, innovative ideas, exchange of ideas that promotes one of those, like that magic learning environment where people can learn from each other in the classroom and outside mm-hmm. of the classroom. And yes, the easy way out, in my opinion, is to just do it by race. All right, you know, we have, you know, all these different races here and for sure it's going to be that way. But again, look at their full application, what their experience was like, how they present themselves, and then admit them on some of those bases. And when you take out the race, it would be my hope that they're able to consider more of the full applicant and not just say, all right, we're going to admit the same type of person each time because then you don't have a diverse population you have people who all think the same way all doing the same way and that's not that doesn't build that that magic learning environment and I think so for me I was really trying to think about like there's a lot of you know black people I know that can get into an Ivy League on their own merits without you know, the added race as a factor. Mm -hmm. But then I've also heard stories about, you know, PhDs and professionals and like exceptional business people today that um, didn't have the high GPA or didn't have all of this, didn't go through these great competitive programs, but they were trying to do something with themselves. Mm -hmm. And, um, Someone may have given them a chance, definitely not one of those great institutions, but, you know, there's people that start off at community college, mm-hmm. excel, transfer to amazing college sort of thing. Um, and I feel like in those situations were their candidates being admitted that didn't have, you know, the merits, didn't have the amazing experiences um, that could get them to, through the door. I felt like I didn't think that was the case, even though, you know, you let people tell it on campus, you're only here just because of your race. Like you aren't supposed to be here. So. Which, you know, I'm like a big supporter of the. I felt like just eliminating race from the question and stuff like that and not using it because I think before race, they were getting extra points. Like your numbers went up Mm -hmm. if race in considering race. And mm-hmm. so the more numbers, the higher the numbers are. Right. And, you know, the greater chance you are going to be admitted, you right. know. And so now you're not going to get those extra numbers and there's going to have to be other considerations to beef up, you know, your application. Yeah, like, what I would want to know is like, OK, say you received on a 10 point scale, you received six points for race. And you receive six points for being a legacy applicant. Legacy applicant, not based on merit at all. Mm-hmm. Just means that someone in your family also went to that school. Mm-hmm. So technically for me in my applications process, I would have been considered a mm-hmm. legacy applicant 
because I had an uncle who also attended. This is an uncle that I never even had a chance to meet. He died before I was born, but I would have been considered a quote unquote legacy applicant. But I don't believe that played a part in me being admitted at all. One, because my uncle never donated any money to the school. <laughs> and they probably couldn't find his name in, the, in a whole bunch of things. Um, even though, you know, we know what his track record was. He's not one of those that has his name on a building at the university. Yeah. Um, but I think we have to look at like, well, how much weight is applied to each category? Because yes, you take out that those points that are assigned for race, but how can an applicant make themselves be more impressive and more competitive in, in other those other categories? And that's mm-hmm. what we have to start pitching to our minority applicants because you're still just as qualified, if not more more qualified than some of the other applicants. So put yourself out there, put your best foot forward. And, you know, I'm the biggest supporter of a non-traditional route and it's how you represent yourself. That has been true for me in at the academic setting and in the workplace. How do you, how do you present yourself to get your foot in the door here? It's about what you do when you get there, not what you how does your application stack up against another person as far as credentials? So how do you represent your experience? And if you say, oh, you know, I only have X, Y, and Z, then that's exactly how someone's going to read your resume or your application for higher education and vice versa. So I don't think it's the be all end all. I do think that this does, this decision will make us take a, a deeper look at the applications and admissions process. And I'm interested to see how transparent they'll be going forward. Because like you said, there's something that's presented to us and then there's a, well, this is what really happens. Yeah. And then I think people have, you know, there's different opinions in terms of whether it complies with the 14th Amendment or not. and. Um, I know people were raving about Supreme Court Judge um, Katanji Jackson's dissent, and which I haven't had a chance to read all of. But I just think that I think it's interesting. I think that there it definitely happened with some intent. Um, Unfortunately, the way it turned out, but I think there is a positive way to spin it, to go about changing the admissions process. But I think that it's really going to take, I don't think they're going to be able to just like, oh, let's just remove this and keep it moving. I think like there's really going to have to be a review and overhaul and like Mm -hmm. just a whole start over from the ground up on how are we, we agree. what are we looking for in the admissions process now that this isn't a factor um, versus just look, removing the race field. So we agree. And it should, and that's what I mean by I am interested to see where they take this because it should be a lot of change that come. And so my overly optimistic self can't wait to see what happens. This impacts not just the education though, this impacts, this touches many industries in different ways and immediately after this happened there were decisions that were made to you know eliminate chief d chief diversity officer roles that weren't even associated with you know higher education Um, and so it's just what was the justification for that just we just don't want to have it or because I feel like you have a right to say, all right, you know, we don't feel like this this role is is impactful to our company. But how that has a ripple effect from an admissions decision, I, so I don't get it. It's just the performative nature of a lot of these places, because even creating the roles, a lot of those were knee-jerk reactions in response to the murder of George Floyd. Mm-hmm. and. Now I feel like the undoing is kind of reaction as well to what's what's just 
this the administration to this new Supreme Court decision. And it sucks that people are kind of making these politically motivated decisions versus them being um, there being a true assessment about the value of having a, a position, a role or program. Well, I mean, you know how I feel about the performative nature of things. I'm not going to get on my, my soapbox about that today. I think our listeners have heard enough from me on that, but it's just disheartening. And I think with this admissions process, it's going to take a high level of accountability, like holding people's feet to the fire to say, yes, we're still committed to a diverse population and not just erase, erase those things. And the same thing goes for the workforce. How committed are you to those things? Okay, you're saying you're eliminating these positions. So what are you going to do in the in their stead? Because that we know that you need a separate position for that for someone to manage those things. And now you're saying, oh, we'll just make other people in the organization manage it. Like we'll put this back on HR and just make HR do it. And that was working out so well in the past. So <laughs> um to say we're gonna go back to that model, like when well, maybe, those decisions maybe are made, the, notion, the, the is supposed to hold those people accountable and say, we create this position for a reason. This is this is what the justification was. So when you eliminate it, how are you going to continue to uphold those pillars that you built into your mission, vision and values? Well, maybe they're saying if race is no longer a factor that we should be considering and, you know. What does it have to do with that, a diversity officer? Then why do we have this role? And again, and that is a very limited way of thinking of, mm-hmm. oh, well, why do we have this role? Because race isn't a factor. Oh, I'm sorry. Is diversity only about race? <laughs> because if you want to put yourself on front street, we can. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I encourage people to actually just like sit down with the decision. And I think there's a lot to learn. And if I were um aspiring college student or the parent of an aspiring college student, um, I think it's good to kind of get with the information you can take advantage of, uh, use it to your advantage on learning more about how these systems work, because I right. think it can only help set you up for success. Right. Um, I wouldn't mull over the whole, because at the end of the day, you're still going to have to apply, build yourself up, apply, take your shot and see where you could get in, you know? Right. And I also think like as, as a parent of a, a a kid that would be going to college, soon to be college applicant, I want to give my kid their best chance. I would want them, like you said, prepare yourself. If you want to go to college, make yourself into the best applicant that you can, which starts at the middle school level, really deciding what you're going to do when you go to college. I mean, when you go to high school, what path you're going to be on. Are you going to be on a college prep path and all that, which I know sounds really old and antiquated, but it is those are decisions you have to make at that level. And that largely falls on the parents, but also not limiting your kid or putting your kid in only a box where they can only go to certain schools to mm-hmm. to be a competitive applicant in well, then it's just board. segregation again. If all the black people just go to HBCUs and all the white people can go to the Ivy Leagues and stuff. And then it's like, is that how y'all want it to be? Is that? And I feel it? like some of it, I'm not going to sit here and act like there aren't. Because that's the response is, well, we'll just go to our HBCUs. We're going to stop giving these places money. We're going to stop playing sports for these places. We're going to stop um, go- attending these schools and we're going to mm-hmm. send our talents and support HBCUs. But I think. And doing that, that that's kind of just giving them what they want. And honestly, unpopular opinion here, I don't see that big of a deal with it. Um, if you are telling me that my obvious talent and contributions aren't valued here, which I don't think that every institution, every white institution is saying that, or every predominantly white institution is saying that, but... If that's what comes out of this decision, that's if that's the trends that come out of it, I don't really see as much of a problem as saying, all right, well, I'm going to take my talents where they're appreciated. That's exactly what we're preaching to. And then those jobs are, that are specifically for certain schools, 
there's going to continue to be an imbalance if that's the case. And those jobs are going to suffer. You know, as well as I know, that you specifically, you bring a certain level of talent to. They love the old boys club. Don't get me wrong now. They are perfect. They do. They love it. Having black and brown people in their And those companies will suffer. How many times have you seen. That old money don't suffer. Have you seen these companies go and they try to, or these You've seen it on social media, on movies and everything. Oh, let me go and find the innovative ideas down in the slums and bring those back to my company. Bring those back to over here so we can make our stuff seem innovative. You know that people have been stealing ideas and innovation from smaller businesses and black communities forever. So, you know what? I'm going to stop sharing my talent and stuff with you. If you feel like I'm not good enough to be on your payroll, then I'll start my own company. If you feel like I'm not good enough to be at your school, then I'll be here and I'll share my talent and stuff here. That doesn't it is. challenge the status quo. If we, I, I hear you, but I feel like it doesn't challenge the status quo. In this world, we're supposed to be working together. We, it's only, it benefits us all to. It does. But I think I would take an approach of if you don't understand it now, then you'll if understand we can, If it our then, race continues they to don't, the poverty they, because we're not getting those jobs, we're not getting that business, we're not getting that money because mm-hmm. we're not, because we can't get in, that is a problem. Meanwhile, there's still going to be vast disparities in, in, in the salaries and incomes. I'm not discounting that. And I know that like both of us have worked in industries that weren't just predominantly black at all. However, we both have also experienced being people trying to shut us out of rooms saying that, you know, you don't belong here or constantly, you feel like you're constantly being overly evaluated. Half the time where black people go and they start their own businesses is because they're not being appreciated where they are. And I say, okay, well, I'm going to do my own thing. <clears throat> and I, I I apply that same approach to schools. And I think I get exactly what you're saying. And I do think that all of us should be together and promote this, this feeling of, well, let's share all these resources wherever and wherever you find your best fit at, whether that's at a predominantly white institution at HBCU or whatever any other title they have for these schools. Um, you should be able to do that. But if the powers that be are so intent on saying, well, we're going to close our doors to you, then I'm not going to share my innovative talent ideas with you because you're going to suffer from not having those diverse opinions and stuff. And you can you perpetuate your good old boys club. That's fine. And once those pockets start hurting, then you want to come back think, over. I don't think that these are... They've been there, done that, though. You know what I'm saying? Like, they they were never hurting in the first place, if you get what I'm saying. Like, when you come from money and these businesses have been around for hundreds of years, you can't be around for hundreds of years if you were hurting. And then it just so happened at, at this point, now when we've been in, introducing diversity, equity, and inclusion into the space, which does, can only make a business growing, thrive, yes. but the, will the business go bankrupt because they let the CDO go? I doubt it. And so, and, and if they replace it with, you know, insert legacy hire or, you know, hire the, the person from, you know, your favorite golf clubs, you know, child to mm-hmm. the equation that can sustain or not even sustain, but just, fill fill the void mm-hmm. then I don't know that they'll come like they were it was forced to happen this way forced to for people to see the value forced for people to open up their minds you know but making something a law or against the law is what you know that really was the backbone so if once it's no longer illegal People can just have their their little clubs and then what they can. And the thing about, unfortunately, about the black communities, we don't protect our 
uh, and that there we don't protect our and that that there institutions and expertise. We don't. They've been doing we don't it. trademark. You know, these good old boys, folks. These people. This old we don't have our contracts that uh, before going into the room and having this conversation right. with people. So it's it's not like it's going to be that difficult. If anything, they don't. They and well, what they teach us, they they're going to. Hopefully they'll teach us that in the HBCUs, but we know they're going to learn it in their Ivy Leagues, you know. And that's what I mean, so, bringing those resources. Will they exploit that? <laughs> yes, they absolutely will exactly. exploit it because people exploit what they you still get what know. they want. So that still reinforces the idea of you. We need to bring those ideas because you aren't the only black person who realizes these things. We need our black executives, our black elite to go and put these ideas, teach these courses at our HBCUs, make sure that that information is also circulated. I remember having like almost a light bulb moment when I attended a business symposium and realized that the things that they were teaching these students there, I never would have known just with going to the school as a regular student. I went to a, a, a symposium and they were teaching things that were like keys to financial health. That I just never would have known otherwise. And those are things where we need to be circulating also at HBCUs. And until, and if we keep allowing these things to be gatekept at, in these largely white spaces, then we're never going to grow in that. And that doesn't mean that we have to be segregational, but we also need to pour those resources into these black institutions or it's always going to be an imbalance and it's always going to be what these black schools aren't as good as these prestigious white institutions. Mm-hmm. So, and that takes a lot of push and legwork from people in our generation right now. And we won't see the fruit of our labor. Our kids may see it. We won't see that. Absolutely not. And people don't want to put in that type of work because we live in an age of, I want immediate results. And if I put in six months of work then I should be able to see those results from that when likely like that's not the attitude that the civil rights leaders had when they were trying to get these laws enacted. A lot of them died trying to make these things happen. Well, I think taking it back to the workplace, there's still, I feel like that's, there's kind of the similarities there when you hire certain talent to get their secrets, to get, their jam and and learn how they do what they do Mm -hmm. and if you don't give it all up then they're looking at you like you're not a team player you're not who we thought you were you know i know exactly what you mean and i I think that part is always disheartening for like ingenious black people who go and they they say all right you know i got my foot in the door at this I'm in the I'm in the club. I got in and you're ready to share all these ideas or you realize I can't give it all away, but I'm going to give some away. And you give them that magic sauce. You give them that secret sauce of how to build their business up. And they realize that's great. But then they say, all right, you know, we got what we needed. And if you're going to slow drip us or we got what we needed and you're out, or if you're going to slow drip us, then we're just going to get rid mm-hmm. of you. Um, Then they they you're out the door again and then you're like well what happened like i did a great job i don't understand what happened why i'm not a part of the club anymore and the reality is you were never a part of the club we Mm -hmm. brought you in to get what you had and then we kicked you to the curb because you were never a part of the inner circle and that just goes back to the we have to create our own spaces and be one of those major place players and i think that that is highly segregational but yeah. If you're going to say that I'm not good enough to be in your space, are you going to bring me on just enough to use me? Why would I want to continue to build up your institution, build up your company? Why am I going to do that? Well, I think so long as we understand that the goal is not to go back to segregation, like that is a benchmark. That is a benchmark in history where there were fights and there is a lot of Right. You know, a lot that happened to move past that point because it was absolutely absurd. And the laws that stem from that, you know, affirmative action being looped in there, you know, it was served that purpose, though, to, again, right that wrong because we know what we, what we did before was messed up. And right. now we're saying, oh, well, now after further evaluation of all of these laws that stem mm-hmm. from that, 
the premise of it is to do away with it altogether and to just universally not use those things as determining factors and just, I guess, look at whatever it is for what it is. And if that is truly the motivation behind it, mm-hmm. but, but I feel like there's going to be so much education, like you can't just put this out and then not have the tools and recommendations of, okay, this is what it looks like from here. This is what y'all should be doing. Absolutely. Because to leave it in the hands and hope that they do right, like, come on. <laughs> Come on. Historically, it's just not, it's not a good thing. We can't expect people to just do the right thing. Um, so I think so long as the goal is not to go back to where, well, this group is over here and this group is over here, then we could be headed in the right direction. But if we're going backwards, and that's what I'm afraid of because that's the reaction. Well, we just going to do our own and be our own and develop our own and have our own. And we just send our own all the way over here. Like, yeah, that's, I think it's great to have obviously the support of your own community. There's mm-hmm. a lot that can come from that, but we also have to learn how to immerse with other cultures because mm-hmm. again, this, <laughs> we're the world, we're, we're global, you know, like that's, that's not what the world looks like anymore. So I just think that most of the time that problem doesn't stem from those black and brown individuals saying, well, we're just going to do our own thing. That's a reactionary response. Like, okay, well, I'm going to do my own thing because every time I try to immerse and be a part of the majority, I get blocked at every turn. So you spent all your time and energy and resources trying to be a part of a space that constantly spits in your face. That you don't feel welcome in. Right. And I get it takes work and these laws are put in place to say, all right, well, you don't have to want to do it. We're going to make you do it. And now that those things are slowly being overturned, we're like, all right, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Because we put all this effort into being a part of these spaces. And it's just... It gets exhausting and that's, that also creates another disparity that black and brown individuals are having to spend all their time and energy trying to be a part of a space that doesn't want them. So they can't spend all their time and energy being this great addition to this space because I'm just trying to survive here. Mm-hmm. Those people, those people who are not black and brown individuals don't have to. That's just another thing they don't have to, to worry about. That's a, that's a privilege that they enjoy. Mm hmm. I mean, clearly we feel very, we have our emotions and feelings about it. I feel very indifferent. I want, I don't want to only, there's so much negative that can take you down a rabbit hole. Exactly. And I feel like that's why I don't want to go that direction because what good can come from it? Exactly. But I think yeah. in trying to think forward because what's done is done and what mm-hmm. people are going to decide to do, these people are in positions of power. I mean, the Supreme Court is untouched. You know, yeah. the only jobs in the world that are like permanent <laughs> that you can't get rid of. So um, what's done is done. But I think it's it's really putting the pressure on the people that are a part of these committees and these groups and the readers and stuff like that to really understand the significance and making sure that it is as objective and impartial as possible. And that you're not taking it, using your power to harm others or not give areas of disparity. Yeah. Um, so I, that's wishful thinking. <laughs> that's wishful thinking. <laughs> and I want to stay in a space of being like extremely optimistic. Cause like you said, it, it does send you down a rabbit hole of negativity and nobody wants to exist in that space of just, well, it's the world has gone straight down the drain. Oh well, but um, I think I've had to like admit certain things to myself, and then once I admit what some of those realities are, that can that sparks my optimistic brain to say, okay, well, how are, how are we gonna make the best of this? Because you're not gonna keep me out of a space that I want to be in. So how can I make the best of this for myself and my community? Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're known for being innovative, so we'll figure it out. 
We'll figure it out. We'll apply pressure to make sure the people that are in the positions of power figure figure it out because we're definitely not going to sit around being quiet. So and that's where the accountability piece goes in. But that's stuff where we have to like bring our own communities together, educate our communities. Just like you said at the beginning of today's episode, I challenge you to go and read these decisions for yourself and not just read these headlines, like get true factual information and and then make a decision on how you feel about it. We have to kind of circulate that idea and that way of going about things within our own communities so that we can be more informed and we can mobilize because we are a disjointed community. Mm-hmm. And we're, I mean, I've been in some very inclusive spaces that have been amazing. I, I think I've had more valuable experiences. And by inclusive, I'm not just talking about a group full of Black people. I'm literally talking about right. like there's different people from different cultures in that group, um, including white people. I have found the most valuable spaces being those spaces where I get to learn about, you know, different cultures um, and people from different backgrounds. And we just don't assume that everyone has the same experience and we get to hear about other people's upbringing experiences, but also draw on those similarities and find those connections, even though all of us are from have had different upbringings or from different places. Those have been the most valuable circles I've been in, and I prefer those circles. Like, exactly. I love my all black spaces and everything, mm-hmm. but I be needing like I, I it's a certain period of time for me. But and mm-hmm. there's some value I get from it, but I don't want to do it all the time because I don't. I still don't feel like I can thrive in those spaces. But where I think the- we definitely need we need diversity within our spaces as well. Yeah, um, which is goes back to the whole point of it shouldn't have to be two separate spaces or three or four different yeah. spaces. We should all be able to come together with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, I I can't help but double down on my initial stance of um, we aren't the ones who are saying that we want to shut out those diverse ideas. And you've been in spaces where it wasn't just a room full of black people, and you were able to share experiences and. People were able to share their experience with you and you learn from it from people who were not just black, but they also were not just you in a room full of white individuals and they're sharing their experience with you and you're going from it. It was a whole I've been in those rooms before, too. And yes, that's not the most comfortable. That's why I'm like the the most comfortable is where you just see different as you see the melting pot and it just feels good. Right. The room where I'm like the only black person in a room full of white people is just like, okay. You are, you are, I have an extra layer of I'm on guard anxiety. What do I do? Um, and I'm sure that is exactly how anybody else will feel. Any other non-Black person would feel in a group full of Black people. Mm-hmm. A similar anxiety. So I'm not saying it's, it only exists for mm-hmm. Black people, but we got to do better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because to your point, you can't grow with just being one, a monolithic society. Mm. Now that note, y'all, thank you for listening to our latest episode of YMDO. See you next time. Bye.